Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Um, And again, if you need to slide along the pews or Beth has the right idea, put your sunglasses on. You are welcome to (laughs) as we come to uh, God's word this morning. Um, A question as we begin. Who do you pray for on a regular basis? Who do you pray for on a regular uh, basis? I think it's natural for many of us to pray for help in times of crisis. Uh, If you look at some of the nationwide research, even those who are not sure they believe in God will actually reach out through prayer in a time of crisis. Um, I think most of us, if you are a person of faith, it's likely that you pray for your friends, uh, family members, maybe in a fairly regular way. Uh, Here at St. Thomas, our leadership, we have a list. And it's all of our members, all of our regular attenders. It's on about a six-week cycle. And we have that so that we can pray for you. Um, Intentionally, uh, systematically, regularly be praying for you. Uh, We also have an email address set up, prayer at stackathens.org. The idea being, if you're in crisis and you send in something to that email address, uh, we'll pray for you. And we'll do it as a group when we gather for uh, morning prayer. Uh, Sometimes we even have some folks over here during communion. Uh, that will offer to either pray for you or a concern that you have uh, before or after you come forward to receive uh, communion. Prayer is something that churches do. Um, and I have to say, my favorite time to recommend prayer as a minister um, is actually when uh, you get the fun situation of meeting with either two people or two groups, and they are completely in conflict and at odds with one another. You could, it might be a couple, it might be folks dating, it might be close friends, it might be a parent and child. It could be two groups who want something different in the church. But it's interesting. What I love to do is recommend that they start praying for one another and praying in the midst of the conflict. And there's nothing like doing that, praying for uh, the one you're at odds with. Uh, the one you might call your opponent. You might even go so far as to say that this is my enemy. And if you begin praying for them, you will notice that it will help till the soil of your own heart so that reconciliation might be possible or even where disagreement persists uh, to honor the person as one made in the image of God, maybe to see a little bit more where they're coming from in the situation. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer Uh, once said that a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another. Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. He says, I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. This is a happy discovery for the Christian who begins to pray for others. So I find it so interesting as we come to 1 Timothy 2. St. Paul is writing to his young uh, protege, Timothy. He's been left temporarily in charge in the church in Ephesus, um, and they're having issues 
There are false teachers that have arisen. Uh, There is false teaching that is being promoted. And the first thing Paul does is he recommends prayer. Not just for one side. (laughs) He doesn't pray against the other side. Uh, And he doesn't even just pray for issues in the church. And they, they certainly had a need to pray for the issues they had. But he talks about prayer for civic rulers and authorities. For Paul, there's a priority of prayer for all. And it's rooted in his understanding of the gospel as the glorious ransoming rescue mission of King Jesus. We're going to look at these seven verses today, 1 Timothy 2. uh, And we'll start with the first four verses, the priority of prayer uh, for all. And it's intriguing as you come to 1 Timothy 2, uh, Paul makes it very clear that the point of this chapter is public prayer. Uh, Who they should pray for why they should pray for them, how that's rooted in the gospel. Um, Later on, there's some parts that uh, get most of the attention in 1 Timothy 2, but they're actually dependent on this. They're about uh, who should pray and how they should pray uh, publicly in the church. And so Paul writes, uh, first of all, that's his way of underlining uh, these instructions to his young protege. Timothy, pay attention. This is the most important thing I'm going to say. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings uh, be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, in order that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And that's one of the chief reasons for this prayer, is for the peace and well-being of God's people. Um, And... This might, I actually feel like this is one of those chapters where we really feel the cultural distance between us and the first century. Um, Bishop N.T. Wright, looking at this passage, says, many Christians who are reasonably content uh, with their country are tempted to think that praying for kings and governments is a rather uh, boring, (laughs) conformist thing to do. It looks like propping up the status quo in many ways. And I think we need to talk about praying for those in authority, what Paul's goal here is. And there's a goal for good governance. There's a goal for peace for God's people. And I think there's a gospel goal that even these kings and those in high authority would actually come to know the Savior. That's part of Paul's heart and intention behind this. In fact, look at verses 3 and 4. Here's why he follows this up. This is good. It is the pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the Ephesian church might have thought, really, even the emperor? Even the bureaucrat? Even the one who has done violence and persecution and exploited us? Paul says, it is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, It's worth underscoring, uh, they are not by any means uh, praying for godly leaders in the church in Ephesus. (laughs) Uh, Their civic leaders um, (laughs) left so much to be desired. These are pagan rulers. Again, in many cases, they have persecuted the church. Uh, Paul bears on his body scars (laughs) from these leaders who he is saying that should be prayed for. Um, Almost everywhere they have done what they can to exploit those under them. 
and the social system of the Roman Empire. It's worth remembering the earliest Christians, uh, they didn't come from the top of society. They came from the bottom, from the floor. And you can imagine they would have said, hey, from their vantage point, uh, Lord, would you topple and do justice with these up here? Because look what they've done to us. And God says, I command prayer for all people through uh, Paul. Um, the other thing that I think is just really, it's, uh, it had not occurred to me until this week, and I was thinking about it, um, is that we tend to think of prayer as a very, very private thing, right? It's between us and God, or maybe we go into a church and close the door, and it's between us and God. Uh, but in the first century, they didn't have notions of privacy like we have today. Um, your full life was essentially lived in view of everybody else. Uh, I was curious to look up, like, when did our modern idea of privacy even arise? And if you look, uh, I'm going to trust Google. Maybe this is false. I don't know. <laughs> but the almighty Google tells me that in the history of Western thought, our notion of privacy first came onto the scene in about 1890 with a book that was released. And this means that, again, your entire life would have been in full view of others. Your prayer life would have been in full view of others. And here's where this matters when we talk about praying for rulers. Um, it would have been expected that every good Roman whether high or low or slave or free, male or female, to use Paul's language, they would have had a very active prayer life. And that prayer life would have been praying not for, but to the emperor. Uh, the one that graffiti tells us was known as the Lord and Savior of that world. And you would be able to see if these Christians are doing that properly. I think when we hear this command to pray for kings and those in authority, uh, it does sound kind of status quo, kind of bourgeois, kind of just, you know, go along to get along. When in fact, Paul is doing something very uh, specific and nuanced with this. And that he's saying, uh, for Christians, we don't pray to the emperor, we pray for the emperor. Do you see the difference there? It's an interesting subversion because what Paul is actually saying is he's demoting the kings and the rulers. He's putting them in their right and temporary place like he does in Romans 13. And says there's a higher authority that we pray to, and we can pray for you, but we pray to God for all people. Um, and actually Christians came into conflict with that early in the Roman Empire uh, because they were not praying to the emperor or doing a little pinch of incense to the emperor they said, we'll pray for him, but we won't pray to him. That's the distinction that is being made here. And I think central to this is just understanding uh, how Paul would have thought about God's people. Um, and he uses all kinds of images in the New Testament, but often he'll talk about the church as a pilgrim people. We're passing through. There's a sense of living in exile, of not fully being at home, uh, rather than overly identifying with our temporal place and nations of residency. And this makes sense if you read the entire Old Testament. Israel's imagination and their spirituality and their allegiance had been shaped by empire after empire exerting their will upon Israel. Um, all the way back to the Exodus when Egypt enslaves Israel um, and foundationally, especially uh, with the idea of Babylon. 
Uh, this nation from uh, the Middle East who came and conquered God's people was used uh, really to judge Israel and took the people off in captivity. Actually, this, this occurred to me actually during the last service. Um, when I talk about the notion of privacy and who we pray to and who we pray for, there's actually a whole lesson in the Babylonian exile where Daniel, uh, who serves in the king's court, um, is commanded to pray to an idol, and he refuses. Um, and we would think, well, how did they see him? Well, because you lived your full life in view of others. Um, there's a lot at stake with that. And most of God's people in exile, their instinct would have been, God, will you come and overthrow this wicked nation and deliver us? And instead, the prophet Jeremiah gives a different word to God's people about how to live in exile that I think is undergirding Paul's uh, framework here in 1 Timothy 2. Jeremiah 29, 7 says, But seek the welfare of the city, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Bishop N.T. Wright again says that the Jewish people had suffered under persecution, under unjust rulers for many generations. When they were in exile in Babylon, longing for Babylon to be overthrown so they could go home, Jeremiah the prophet told them that during this waiting period, this uncomfortable period, settle down, live a normal life, pray to God on behalf of Babylon. The idea being that if Babylon was at peace, they would be at peace. St. Augustine picks this up in his... uh, Huge book, The City of God. I don't know if you've read that book. It talks about the city of God, uh, the city of this world. St. Augustine says, For as long as the two cities are mingled together, we can make use of the peace of Babylon. The faith can assure our exodus from Babylon, but our pilgrim status for the time being makes us neighbors. And this command is about what it means to be neighbors in exile, in places where God's will and ways are not the norm. And are not even in place. Now, I do think there's a relative desire for peace and security. I think especially Paul would say that we want to pray that there's not war. <laughs> that there's not loss of life. That's just a basic common thing for human flourishing. But I don't think that's ultimate for Paul. And I think if we read the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, uh, and really all of Paul's letters, we would see uh, Paul's not avoiding conflict. He's not scared of conflict. There's not a go along to get along in Paul. In 2 Timothy 1, the next letter between these leaders, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He assumed conflict. He assumed suffering. 2 Timothy 3 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. (laughs) And Paul says, pray for your persecutors. Very interesting. Uh, Gordon Fee, uh, who's a New Testament scholar, says that the reason we're to pray for kings and those in high authority um, is not self-serving. I think we're tempted to pray for for self-serving reasons, that it's for us. He says it's actually to be an act of evangelism and mission. Just like God's people were supposed to reach Babylon, uh, who was uh, persecuting them. Gordon Fee writes, The concern here, therefore, is not that the Christian should have a life free from trouble or distress, 
but that they should live in such a way that no one will speak evil of the name of God and of our teaching. Presumably, there's something at work in the public prayer life at the church in Ephesus uh, that's a scandal, that's causing offense, that might be a stumbling block to the gospel. Uh, There are things that uh, problematic men and women are doing in the public gathering, and he's saying, stop it, pray for all people. Um, And you probably don't need much imagination. If you've been in church for a little while, (laughs) you've been around prayer that's not actually addressing God, but addressing the people around you. I don't, ha- I don't have to probably dig into that, but you've heard that prayer where someone's praying and they're really preaching <laughs> or they're really trying to solve an issue or, or the preacher, and, and God bless us preachers, um, who says, hey, we're going to end in prayer. And then it's like a five minute, like you're just doing your conclusion, man. <laughs> you're not praying to God, you're talking to everybody. Um, I just have to assume that's part of what's happening in this church in Ephesus is as they're praying, they are just playing out their conflict with one another instead of praying to God for one another. And the kind of fruit that could come of that type of prayer, maybe they're assuming that God is only for them and against those who would oppress them or against the Romans or against those rulers, just like God's people assumed in Babylon. And Paul's here to assure them, no, God, the gospel is for all people. Um, high and low, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. And he roots that in his view of the gospel, our great Redeemer's ransom. So I want to look at verses 5 through 7. Paul will press this point that the gospel is for all. And here again, I just feel the distance between us and the first century. Because I think when we hear the word all, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you hear the word all, you think of everyone individually, right? Liberty and justice for all, that should be for everyone individually. That's the way we come at this. Um, and there, there's, there's a way to do that. But I think for Paul, when he hears the word all or all people, um, he's talking about categories. He's most, uh, more often talking about all people groups. Like the gospel is for all means the gospel isn't just for Jews, it's for Jew and Gentile. The gospel is for all means the gospel is not just for men, but men and women. Now the gospel is for all means not just the gospel is for uh, those who are free, but no, slave and free, low and high. That's what, when Paul thinks about all people and God's desire that all people be saved, he's usually pushing on the edge of their social divisions and their ethnic divisions and the prejudices that they might have had between these groups in the first century. Paul writes, for there is one God. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, uh, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, these seven verses, indeed this whole chapter, um, almost every verse has become like a book or a PhD dissertation, or an argument. There's so much extrapolation and speculation from 1 Timothy 2. Um, And and those are well and good, but I I think we do well to hear first Paul's thrust, the prayer for all because the gospel is for all. Um, And that it's the victorious death on the cross of Jesus, this one mediator, his mighty resurrection that stands as his great gift of love as a ransom for all. 
to kind of underscore it, Paul says, not only does God love all peoples, Jew and Gentile, he's actually plucked me, enemy of the church, to go and serve the ones we thought God would never reach, the Gentiles. I've been appointed an ambassador and preacher uh, for that. Um, the other thing that's kind of fun, and uh, this is, I, I can be a theology nerd often in the pulpit um, <laughs> and scratch itches you might not have, but um, this idea of Jesus as a ransom, there is a whole uh, line of thinking and uh, intrigue in the church about if we are ransomed, who are we ransomed from? Um, and there's like this great, great medieval literature and artwork about us being ransomed from Satan. Like that Jesus somehow just like tricked him. And, and maybe like something like the dishonest manager we read about in Luke 16. Um, and that's fun. And that's fun to speculate and think through, and certainly that we've been ransomed from sin, death, and the devil. Um, but what I was intrigued reading through this, because I've always thought about who we ransomed from, but I go, well, what are we ransomed for? Because when Paul talks about Jesus as a ransom for all, he follows that up with his vocation and the mission God has given him to go as an ambassador to the Gentiles. What are we ransomed from, but what are we ransomed for, and who does that work? All right, I want to close with one illustration. I think we're doing okay uh, time-wise. Because like I said, each of these verses has a life of their own in theological discourse and thought, um, and they can come as bullet points, but I want to help this come alive a little bit. There's an illustration that I think brings this idea of Jesus as a ransom for all um, to life. And it is uh, the classic uh, Les Mis or Les Miserables. I think that's how Robin said it out there. I don't know. I can't say that. And before, actually, you know, uh, this is the kind, it, it's this like, man, it's a huge book, right? It's like one of the biggest novels ever. It, it's a play. It's a film. It's a musical. It's all these things, Les Mis. Um, and, and they're wonderful. They're these artistic displays of God's grace and the transforming work of the gospel uh, but if I'm honest, man, <laughs> I was not exposed to Les Mis until I was an adult uh, serving in ministry. And I'll tell you why. Because I had to be a little bit contrarian when I was growing up. Like all these theater kids with their Les Mis shirts on, like this is the greatest thing ever. I was like, nope, can't do it. <laughs> Too popular. I just cannot go there. And there's a sense in which um, I know others like that who are musically inclined, um, even in our own congregation. Uh, I want to encourage you to maybe revisit that, set aside any contrarian notion you have, and just think about this for a moment. Um, and so again, and I'm going to talk about Les Mis for a little bit now, and I'm going to assume that you either love this story and know it intimately, or you have snarkily dismissed it. <laughs> Um, you're, you're probably not in the middle when it comes to this material. Uh, that's my hunch. Uh, but I just think it helps really flesh out some of what we see in 1 Timothy 2 and the complexity and context and tensions that we feel. So early on in uh, Les Mis, we're introduced to, as you might know, Jean Valjean. Uh, he's newly released from a long, unjust prison sentence and he is desperate for a meal and a place to sleep. Uh, the first, if you listen to the musical, the first song essentially says, you have become well acquainted with the law. 
The law has had its way with you for decades. And they actually say, you need to continue learning more about the law to make your way. And there's a fork in the road at the beginning that says, do we need to know more about the law or do we need to experience grace? Right at the front. And so he's desperate for a meal, a place to sleep. He's been labeled as this violent man, this outcast, this criminal. He's been changed by being in prison. Um, and he comes to this home. He thinks it's the parish priest. ends up being the bishop. Uh, bishop uh, Bienvenue, welcome. The bishop of hospitality. And he welcomes him in. And, and it's not overly remarkable, but he, he treats him as uh, a human. <laughs> he feeds him. He clothes him. He gives him a place to sleep. He honors him with dignity and with agency. And then, despite that great kindness during the night, uh, Jean Valjean goes and steals the silverware, takes the wealth of this bishop. Um, and the bishop wakes up, he confronts him, and Jean Valjean visits violence upon this older man of God. He leaves him unconscious on the floor. It's not a push. It's not a shove. Um, he's victimized by this man. And the scene goes on. I just wonder, man, can you imagine being that bishop? <laughs> can you imagine being the Christian who's like, all right, I'm going to extend Christian hospitality. I'm going to help this person. I'm going to actually let my faith inform my action. And then, boom, you are stolen from you are left unconscious. You have violence visited upon you. You are betrayed. The authorities catch the man. They drag him back before the bishop. And what will the bishop do with this man caught red-handed uh, in his sin? I don't know. The old cliche ran through my head. Uh, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, he, he definitely has already gone more than out of his way to extend hospitality to this man. Um, his fate hangs in a delicate balance. And to be honest, the first time I saw uh, this, I think it was probably a Hugh Jackman film. Um, and if I'm honest, maybe every time I see that or listen to it, um, there's weeping. There's at least tears. Because Jean Valjean is this man who life has been hard to, and he's made hard choices and wrong choices, and he doesn't trust people, and he's caught red-handed in his sin, and that's you and that's me. And we have a chance to see how this man of God is going to respond uh, as a picture of God's response to us. So the bishop kind of cheekily uh, expresses surprise. Uh, why did you take the silverware, but you didn't take the expensive candlesticks? I mean, they're worth a lot more. He, he assures the authorities. Yeah, he, he's under exactly what he said. His story checks out. Um, you can go on your way. Um, some would say, is that dishonest? Is it lying? And I just think of the idea that in Scripture, our sin is covered over. Our shame is covered up. He covers over this man's sin. And the man, he even will eventually give him the resources to build a new life, but he's, 
this man, Jean Valjean, you and me, he's left alone with the bishop. The one who extended him every kindness and he essentially spit in his face, stole from him, struck him and left. And now he's back. How is he going to respond? And the bishop, he lays his hands on his shoulders. And I always just see Rembrandt's return of the prodigal son in this scene where the father extends blessing and welcome and grace and mercy to the son. He puts his hands on his shoulders and then he begins to sing. I won't sing. I'm not that kind of preacher. Don't worry. Um, but he sings and remember this, my brother, see in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man by the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood. God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. Actually, the Jackman version messes it up. It says, I have saved your soul for God. I'm like, no, no, get that bought in there. It says Jesus is a ransom for all. And you've been ransomed from and you've been ransomed for God. Uh, Victor Hugo in his novel put it this way, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. Now I give you back to God. That's what this passage is about, ultimately. We've been ransomed from our sin and darkness. We've been ransomed from our fear and hatred. We've been ransomed from ourself. And the very worst inclinations we have, we've been ransomed for God and the mission he might have for us, and the future that he might have for us. And I would say, if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you've been ransomed, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, verse 4 is very clear. The Lord desires for you to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the ransom's been paid. <laughs> There's nothing you've done that can't be forgiven. I think that's hard for many of us to believe at times. But 1 Timothy chapter 1, just earlier, Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he puts himself as the enemy of the church as an illustration of God's grace and ability to use and transform anybody, even the least likely. Um, if you do know the Lord, man, give thanks. Give thanks for the one great mediator, Christ Jesus, his glorious ransom of you. That caught red-handed in your sin. And then maybe further consider the mission and future God has for you like he did for Paul. When Paul was ransomed, he had a mission to the Gentiles. You've been ransomed and redeemed and rescued. God has a mission for you. And if you're going, I don't know where to start with that. I don't know who to start with in terms of this mission or sharing my faith. Well, then I would just take you back to verse 1 of chapter 2. Begin with prayer. Make a list. See who you can pray for regularly and intentionally uh, that they would come to know the one great mediator, Christ Jesus. That they would know the ransom that has been paid. They would know the future uh, they could have, the welcome that they can receive in the Lord. And so to that end, let me pray a uh, prayer for mission for our congregation and those gathered here this morning. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross. 
that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your Holy Spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. And we pray this with gratitude for the honor of your name. Amen.